Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With a new podcast every day of the Premier League season, this is Football Social Daily. It's destination Istanbul for the blue half of Manchester as good ship City have set the radar pinging for the Bosphorus with Pep Guardiola at the helm. Navigation to Turkey comes via Paris and City collected all the goods they needed last night in the French capital. Riyad Mahrez and Kevin De Bruyne plundered the precious cargo of two away goals but can they deliver in a week's time on home shores? And it's on those very home shores that European fervour continues tonight as the Europa League semi finals come into view. Can Ole Gunnar Solskjaer safely sail through this Manchester United semi after bottoming out on the last five occasions? Roma the visitors and looking to sink United hopes at Old Trafford. Arsenal too in action in the last four. The Gunners take their fleet to eastern Spain in the coastal city of Villarreal where they square off against a familiar face in Unai Emery. All that set against the backdrop of a potential fan mutiny against the current mooted mercenaries running the football club. Welcome to Football Social Daily, the only podcast focusing on Premier League clubs with a new episode every single day of the campaign. I'm Niall McCorn. I suppose I'm the Admiral for today's show. And uh, joining me on deck, Commodore Callum Tyler. Hello, Callum. I was going to say, who's <laughs> writing these intros? And you also missed uh, a glaringly obvious Spanish Armada uh, yeah. Pun for the Villarreal game, but that was good. I know, I especially that. with the gunners and the cannons yeah. sinking the ships and all that, but I didn't I like, want to touch it, a nerve. It. I don't have much faith in Arsenal to sink the Spanish Armada tonight, let's be honest. Callum, you've just, you've just killed his, uh, his set up for the second half of the podcast. <laughs> We've also got Jolly John Paul Hughes. I feel like you've got a bit of the pirate about you, JP. I've no idea why. I, I've been accused of many things in my life, mate, um, and, uh, but that's the first time my pirates have ever been chucked in there, but I'll take it. That's all right. I think I'd suit an eye patch. <laughs> you've not got a cut list hanging around at home or anything like that <laughs> i give away no secrets <laughs> let's talk about the champions league because of course that took center stage last night and we'll leave the pirate puns to one side uh, as paris saint-germain took on manchester city and city won the game by two goals to one an accomplished performance on the road in the champions league picking up the two away goals that puts them in a great position ready for the second leg and of course, Istanbul.
Istanbul the location, Turkey the location for this season's Champions League final. On the whole, a decent performance, a little bit shaky early doors, but in the second half mainly, that was when City really got the job done. There was lots of talk about Manchester City's impressive defence, but the first goal that PSG scored, a Marquinhos header, Callum, was that disappointing to concede for you as a City supporter, seeing as it came from a set piece? And it did feel like in that first half, half particularly, it was the PSG set pieces that seemed to cause City a few issues. Well, that first half, um, the way PSG started that game, they were they were coming at us. They were right at um, the throats of Manchester City. And it, it, although the goal only came after 13 minutes, there was an air of inevitability about it. They'd gone close a couple of times. They, they'd looked really dangerous. And I think there was a lot of talk on the coverage last night about the fact that we were trying to mark zonally. And I think there's always a risk when you're trying to mark zonally that somebody just you know, sneaks through in a, in a set-piece situation, a corner situation like it was, and finds a bit of space. And I actually think um, kind of counterintuitively conceding that early was probably the best thing that could have happened. Um, I think it woke us up afterwards. It, it gave... Uh, the squad something to rally around it, it was probably the subject of the halftime team talk and I think the reason that we performed so well in the second half was because we had to I think it it gave them the, the kick up the backside that they needed it was disappointing it felt inevitable at the time but I think probably the right time to concede if there is one <laughs> yeah I mean it took about for me it took about an hour for City to really get into their stride and start playing like the Manchester City we've seen for the majority of the season why do you think that might have been, JP? Is it as simple as nervousness heading into a, a semi-final coming up against opposition that we know are dangerous with players like Mbappe and Neymar? Any possible explanations as to why it took a little bit longer for City to kind of click into gear? Yeah, I, I think they began the game um, probably with a little too much reverence towards PSG. Um, and it didn't help that PSG came out swinging. The City, in the early stages of the game, reminded me of the heavyweight boxer who's just been caught with an absolute peach of a punch on the nose. It's not enough to put him down, um, but what he gives is he grabs onto his opponent and he just hangs in there to get himself a wee opportunity to kind of allow, <laughs> uh, allow the imaginary smelling socks to kick in and get his head to clear. They looked a little punch drunk at the start. I, I don't think they expected PSG to come at them as fluid and as aggressively as they did. We knew that PSG have, have the skills and I think they were a little bit worried about Neymar and Mbappe uh, being able to isolate some of their players and, and it felt as if early mm. on they were, they, were, they were overly focused on possession and position. Because of that, they didn't get forward enough and it allowed, it was mentioned a few times in commentary, what it allowed PSG to do was, was get Neymar on the ball quite comfortably. It wasn't difficult for him to get on the ball. And then even though City were well positioned when he was on the ball and plenty of people behind it, he was absolutely in fire in the first half. So it, it, it probably um, City did well to go in at half-time, just one nothing down at that point, I felt. However, um, I think that uh, Pep really showed his, his worth with, with, with a few little tweaks at half-time. Certainly, I, I think they were they were caught out a little bit and rocked on their back foot with how well PSG started because they were sensational in the first half. The the tweak that you say that Pep made, I think, that was so key was the fullbacks. They basically didn't attack in the first half at all, which is such a key element in a, in a Pep side. And I think that was born of a desire to not let um, Mbappe and Neymar catch them on the break. Like we looked very nervous about sort of pressing them a little bit. It was actually probably the least amount of pressing I've ever seen a Man City team do. Um, and then in the second half. 
you know, Walker, Cancel, and Zinchenko when he came on were getting right up that touchline and just pinning them back. And it was it was like a return to the Man City of old in, in the second half. But I think they needed that first half just to to like you say ride the storm um, and and see what happened. But there was a there's an incredible stat. That's the first game that uh, Mbappe has ever played in the Champions League where he's not had a single shot on target. So although we could have been two or three down in the first half, it was actually probably also an, an amazing defensive display, which is a bit of a strange thing to say. And you know what? On Mbappe, even though, like you say, those stats kind of speak for themselves and City's defence has been solid on the whole this season, some of the times that he had the ball at his feet where he just moves the ball so quickly... The, the change of direction is an absolute joke. And, you know, everyone's been waxing lyrical about Phil Foden this season, and rightly so. I thought he was excellent again last night. Um, but I just think Mbappe, and this is no discredit to Phil Foden, I think Mbappe is just maybe a, a few steps ahead naturally because I think he's had more first-team football, he's played in the World Cup, etc., etc., than Phil Foden is. But some of the things Mbappe does in terms of the pace and the change, just the movement, the way he, he kind of moves the ball from left to right so fast... It's just almost impossible to defend against at times, and he doesn't look like he's putting any effort in at all. I kind of, I kind of exactly. love the the attitude, the sort of shrug of the shoulders, raised eyebrows that he plays with. It's almost like he's kind of he's playing this game to such a high level, but he's not totally focused on it. His mind's elsewhere. Um, I just, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I love, I love watching him. He's, he's unbelievable. And actually, if, you know, would Man City are they going to sign a striker this summer? He's the person I would want more than even Haaland. He's just, he's unbelievable. Absolutely. Is he a modern day footballer or the modern era footballer who reminds me most of Brazilian Ronaldo at his peak? Um, and, and I think that's where he can, hopefully, if he continues to develop and do what he's doing. Because every time they mention his age, I just bust out laughing. <laughs> <laughs> and you know. It, it, for me, very few footballers have excited me as much as Brazilian Ronaldo did back in, in that era with the pace, the power, the skill and everything that all goes with it. And, and and I see so much of him in Mbappe. I'm really excited about what he's going to do. Yeah, Ronaldo Nazario is one of my favourite ever players. Um, aside from that dumb haircut he had in 2002, but that was kind of <laughs> adds to part of the legend, I think. Um, I think you're right, Callum. It did feel like Mbappe was thinking more about playing Call of Duty when he got back to his house than playing <laughs> games, games against Manchester City. I, I once, I once heard that. I once heard an interview with with, with, uh, with Ronaldo, and, and he mentioned, "Did you ever hear why he got that haircut? That ridiculous haircut with the little tuff at the front." He says that he was away playing international football, and his son at the time, his wife told him that when they were watching the game, the Brazil game, uh, and uh, Roberto Carlos would come on screen, his, his baby son at the time, would go up and kiss the screen, um, thinking it was dad. And he said, because they both had exactly the same haircut, so he says, right, I need to get something that when the kid sees me on TV, he knows exactly <laughs> me. So that's where that stupid haircut came from, from his kid kissing TV, uh, Roberto Carlos was on it, thinking it was his dad. But maybe there's another story behind that, we'll not go into <laughs> I reckon they look absolutely nothing alike each other. I think even at three years old, I'd be able to figure that out. Um, yeah, but the kid looks a lot like Roberto Carlos. That's, <laughs> the... <laughs> that's the size of thighs on this wee guy. Yeah. Uh, let's focus back on the game. Kevin De Bruyne scored Manchester City's equaliser. I mean, that goal, the way the ball was dropped into the penalty area, Callum, caused the PSG defence so many issues. I'm not saying that Kevin De Bruyne meant to score because it's quite clear that he didn't, but is that just his just rewards from the dangerous ball that he put into such a difficult area to defend. The goalkeeper didn't know whether to stay or go. He ended up staying. The defenders left it to the goalkeeper. And in the end, it was a bit of a disaster for PSG and it went into the corner. But is that just, uh, you know, a product of how dangerous Kevin De Bruyne is with his delivery? Yeah, I don't think I don't think even he would say that he meant that, but he is so precise and he's got such an eye for where the goal is that it's almost, I actually think it would have been harder for him to put that ball sort of an inch either to 
one side. Um, I know that both both Man City goals came from set pieces, uh, or not not set pieces, but kind of came from kind of crosses into the box, um, came from quite far out, and we're both quite lucky. Um, but I also think that, that at that point in the game, City had City had kind of moved up the gears and were playing so well that you know you, you kind of good sides tend to get the lucky goals, um, and I think that was that was what happened last night. It, I mean, it's a it's a beautiful cross. It's textbook De Bruyne, and yeah, I think the way PSG responded to that goal was foreshadowing the way they would respond to pretty much everything in the rest of the game from that point on. They just completely yeah. lost their heads. <laughs> yeah, we'll come on to that in a bit because, um, of course, there was a red card as well for Idrissa Gay and Mares scored a free kick, which we'll talk about shortly. But they say you need luck on your side in big games, JP. Do you think City did get a little bit of that? Every single club who's ever won anything of any note will be able to look back on it and identify one or two moments where luck went in their favour. It could have gone against them and it didn't. You need it. Lots of people in every walk of life, I've probably mentioned this before, like to think that luck has very little to do with uh, what they've achieved. Luck has a massive, massive part to play in any success anybody has in any walk of life. You think how many variables there are in every single element of every single thing that takes place on a football pitch. Luck has a huge role to play in it. But like poker or, or cards or, or any of these things, people say, oh, it's the luck. It's about do you have, when luck comes your way, do you have the tools, the skill set, the mentality, the belief to take full advantage of it? to actually exploit it to its full potential. So, yeah, no question, City got lucky um, with a free kick that's, uh, that's really badly hit and flies through the wall. <laughs> De Bruyne. Um, now, you could... Uh, there was Obviously, there was an element of luck about that, but also De Bruyne is deliberately putting that amount of spin and dip on the ball to try and make it dip and hit the ground at that point and make it really difficult for the goalkeeper. It's no coincidence because I'm right at the post because that's where it's aimed, you know? It's for certain, no question it's for someone else to get a touch on, but the ball is being put there. So they definitely get lucky uh, at the right moments, but they then had the skill, the foresight, the fortitude, the planning to make sure that they consolidated that bit of luck and took full advantage of it. Because there was, the, 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 you know, the, right throughout the season, you're going to see these little things happen. And I genuinely believe when you see little moments like that and things like that go your way, it will give City the real intrinsic belief that this is the season they're going to pick up the Champions League, and I think it is. Just on that Mares free kick then, JP, is that the best, worst free kick of all time? I think it's up there because it's an absolutely shocking effort, which should have smashed straight into the wall, but it ended up going through and Navas couldn't claw it out. So I suppose it goes down as a PSG mistake. I mean, Mares couldn't quite believe his luck. I don't think Kevin De Bruyne even could, who was stood next to him, I think was another candidate to take it. I've played with plenty of goalkeepers in the past who, when you get into that dressing room at the end of that period, you would have been punched in the face for what happened in that wall. And I'm not exaggerating when I say that. It would have been a fist fight in the dressing room for what happened in that wall. You have one responsibility, and that's to stand there as a solid unit. What I'm really looking forward to now, though, is now that that's happened, is the uh, copycats sweeping across world football where they're going to put one person standing behind the wall, running, see instead of that guy that lies down underneath it. <laughs> There's going to be one person running side to side in the wall in case the wall breaks up with his chest <laughs> to block the wall. <laughs> because it was... It was it was ridiculous, man. But honestly, at that level, for, to, to concede a goal like that is unforgivable. Well, Joe Hart spoke about it on the TV last night, Callum. He was one of the pundits in the studio. Of course, a former Manchester City goalkeeper, very successful in his time at the Etihad. 
he said fundamentally Navas the goalkeeper cannot be blamed for that even though it was reasonably close to him because his reaction time was minimal because he's got the time it takes for Amaris to kick the ball leave his boot to hit the wall but he only ever sees the ball once it bursts through the wall and you're not expecting that as a goalkeeper uh, and Joe Hart pinpointed that it was the failure from the PSG defenders or those in the wall to do their jobs yeah I'd agree with that I think um, Man City as well had another three players in their own decoy wall um, it gets very sort of chess like these free kicks nowadays isn't it <laughs> um, plus there's the guy lying down plus Navas isn't actually the tallest of goalkeepers and then it's like is Mara's going to hit it or De Bruyne is going to hit it and then it took a deflection and he actually when you look at how, how much he, he's able to stretch I think I mean, if he was maybe if he was maybe one foot to his right, he would he would get there. But I think you can't fault the goalkeeper. You absolutely have to look at the defence there and why they're not throwing their bodies in in line with the ball. Um, but yeah, yeah, I mean, it was just symptomatic of the the implosion that PSG were going through at that at that moment. Because nobody was doing their jobs quite right at all. I've never we've never discussed this. Yet. Did anybody else get really annoyed by the guy lying down under the wall behind the wall? It really, really me off, man. I, I, how many? Has, has it ever worked? Has it ever worked? Have we ever seen the ball hit that guy? Like, you know, has has it right? Yeah, so you're taking a player completely out so that they can't roll it underneath. The, the, how many free kicks were scored that way anyway? I can, I, I'm lucky if I can think of three or four. You know what I mean? It's not as if it was this. All of a sudden, there was this mad spate of goals right across world football. Everybody well, was rolling be, the ball be under off, the wall. They'd JP having someone hanging off the crossbar to try and stop it going in the top bins because that's where most I, free I, kicks I often, go. I often think I... they'd be better off. Like, has anyone tried not having a wall? Because then, then you can see exactly yes. where the ball. Like that. That's for me it would would make most sense. If they're always complaining about how the keeper can never see it and defenders getting away, just don't, just don't have a wall. Just be like, just stare them down and go. Just shoot. Line them all up along the goal line yeah. like soldiers. That was we, we used to do that. I'm, I'm not joking. You'll laugh at this, but we used to do that at Dundee United back in the day. See if the free kick was a certain distance. See if the free kick was maybe 25 plus. Mm. Um, what the, the the keeper would just say, just no wall, just take them away. Think, think. <laughs> we used to think about it. What you're trying to do is almost like trying to take. If, if you if you clear the wall and let the keeper get a look at it, yeah, it's like trying to take a penalty kick for 25, 30 yards. Good luck scoring yeah, exactly. that. Yeah, from an angle. Yeah, you need to be able to hit. <laughs> you need to be able to hit the ball like uh, <laughs> Roberto Carlos, his son. That was looking <laughs> after. You know I mean? Absolutely. Well, Callum, I think if it was a game of chess, that free kick would have just been the equivalent of the board being flipped over because there wasn't really too much um, intricacy in it. Certainly a mistake from PSG and not the first one. You say they lost their heads a little bit. Idrissa Gay ended up getting sent off for an awful challenge on Ilkay Gundogan. And although I don't think it was one of those tackles where people say, oh, it's malicious. I don't think there's any doubt about the decision to show the red card. No, it was it was a horrific challenge. Um, I was trying to think last night what what this implosion from PSG reminded me of because it was I don't remember watching a team this be this good in the first half and be this like just horrible to watch in the second half and bad tempered bad tackles you know shouting at each other everyone was out of position just like it was it wasn't even Spurs-esque it was it was worse than that it was like Spurs squared um just like the way they managed to bottle it and the only thing it reminded me of is I'm finally back playing five aside now which which has been absolutely amazing and there's this team that we play on a Saturday morning and they, and they always insist on going all going together because they're all JP will know the type of people I'm talking about mad we raging Rangers fans they all insist on playing together and as soon as they go they come out all swagger and then as soon as they go a goal down they're all shouting at each other they're storming off the pitch they're they just absolutely lose their heads and it's it's amazing how it it flipped the other way as well because when PSG started doing that that was when Man City started popping the passes around with suddenly a bit of pace they looked really sharp, and I'm, I'm so interested. I mean, JP, you've played the game. Like, how 
can you feel that on the pitch when like all of a sudden one team loses their heads and the other team go oh hang on a minute now we remember how to play like it just it seemed to happen in an instant after that first goal you can you can you can smell it <laughs> honestly you really can you can smell it you can sense it coming it doesn't even take the implosion you can sense before that implosion happens you go they're ready to crack and if, if you're smart enough you know where the pressure points are to apply more pressure for the for the, the people in that team who will set the others off like a domino reaction and I think that's one of the things about Neymar he was sensational in periods last night in, in that first half absolutely untouchable he was doing things other players in the world can't Right, in certain mm. instances last night, but he's also the guy that, as soon as that happens, is the first to give you the sign we are weak mentally, and he's the one you go at. He's the one you start to wind up, and you start to see the little kicks come out, and you know that when he turns, he's got such a power and influence in that team that the rest of them will start to implode. You can sense it a mile off, and when it's happening, it's unbelievable the level of, of, of confidence and assuredness that gives you, because all of a sudden, you know you've got somebody mentally beat. It's like the old Mike Tyson. I've watched, uh, recently been watching, uh, anybody hasn't seen him, I highly recommend him, the Frank Bruno documentary and the Lennox Lewis documentary both on uh, on Sky Documentaries, and, and, and they both kind of focus on uh, the, the big build-up to the fights with Tyson. That, that, those, are, those are the kind of peak uh, of where they got to. And uh, it always reminds me how, how often Tyson had somebody beat before the first punch was thrown because mm. of the, the, the look in the eye and everything that was going there. It's the same when you can see that look in the eye of your opponent in the football pitch. You know you've got them. And as soon as that started happening to PSG last night, I knew there was only going to be one outcome. Well, it's interesting because normally the, the coins on the other the other side with Neymar normally he's the one that attracts people mm-hmm. getting kicked and uh, and you know he's the one that attracts the fouls and I suppose Foden almost plays that role for Manchester City you look at the game at the weekend was it the Aston Villa game where Foden was kicked off the park pretty much was there a red mm-hmm. card for, for Matty Cash in the Aston Villa game yeah, um, yeah, yeah. two fouls on Foden in quick succession and then you think about players like Grealish as well always being kicked and attracting fouls those those players that are always taking lots of touches on the ball when the tempers start to boil over they're they're the ones that players tend to go after and try and take down well Neymar there was I think that's the most I've watched of of Neymar perform because I don't tend to watch PSG week in week out but I was watching him in the second half there was there was two moments which I think kind of summed this up the first one really smart gamesmanship people will call it diving or whatever but he 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 sort of draws a foul a pretty light touch foul wins a free kick he's he's this is when he was rolling around on the floor he was limping he you know said he had a dead leg or whatever stops the game for about a minute man city somehow lose their shape he kind of stands up and as the camera pans back where they're about to take the free kick i'm just watching him and he's walking and he's walking he walks away from his man and he walks into space and i'm like they've they've completely missed the because he's limping so they think he's not about to play and then as soon as the ball's kicked he's fine again <laughs> and like literally five seconds later he's in the six yard box having a shot that that Mares has to scramble away that was like one side of Neymar and I'm like right you need to keep tabs on him much better and then the second side of Neymar was in the last 10 minutes of the game and he makes an absolutely gratuitous foul on I think it was Ruben Diaz and he gets booked for it um or he certainly like like got a talking to from the ref for it and I was just like what what have you done that you've been so clever and you clearly understand the psychology of the players around you and the opposition to then go and do the the thing you're trying to tempt them into doing it's it's mad there's like this Jekyll and Hyde thing going on with him it was it was so interesting to watch uh, interestingly, Gary Lineker on Twitter said he thought it was one of the best away Champions League performances ever. I mean, I don't know whether I'm being unfair to Manchester City, but I think that was a bit over the top. <laughs> <laughs> Just a tad. Just a tad. I think it was certainly one of the most impressive 
uh, turnarounds from a first to a second half performance I've seen against such quality opposition at such an important stage of the Champions League. I certainly not, I, I, you know, I don't know if I'd call it one of the best ever away Champions League performances. I'd like to know if Gary, Gary Lineker has seen every Champions League away performance um, from every club that's ever played. I don't know whether it's the fact that PSG have never really won the Champions League and these two sides are in historical terms, still pretty much finding their feet in the competition. PSG obviously have qualified for the last 10 or so years in a row. City very, very close to that number as well. But these are still two relative European newcomers. And if you're talking about all-time come all-time away performances in the Champions League, I'm not sure this is even in the top five or ten, is it? No, I, I think it's some of, if I was going to give anybody credit for um, some of the best things I've seen away from home in the Champions League, what it was is some of the best half-time managerial tactical tweaks. Yes. Um, certainly obvious to, 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 you know, simpletons like you and I <laughs> um, that we don't see. But the way that he, he, re, he saw what had happened, he made sure there was no panic. They stuck to what they were doing. They had the confidence and trust in one another to continue the way they were. But what he did is he moved Foden in the pitch a little bit. He dropped De Bruyne back a little bit. All of a sudden, he moved. Um, the, the, the fullbacks were allowed and released to start to go forward. And everybody played about 10 yards further up the pitch from that back four. And what happened all of a sudden is Di Maria, who I thought was massively influential in the game, stopped having the time and space to find Neymar. And, and you could see... I mean, it's, it's brilliant when you can see very clearly the little tweaks that a manager has made influenced the game so uh, so substantially and I think that's one of the most impressive things for me and uh, uh, you mentioned him earlier I do want to give a wee shout out to Phil Foden because I thought he struggled in the first half and, and, and the, the fullback he was up against I can't remember who it was had an excellent game against them but the maturity that lad showed for the way that he managed not to panic not to get his head down to listen to the, 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 the tactical switch from his manager and then have the influence he did in the second half I cannot believe how much that boy continues to impress me every time I watch him. He's got to he's got to start from England. I think on the uh, on the the point of the sort of the pundits overselling this, I think they've all had the um, the memo from UEFA that, that the Champions League is the best thing in the world. <laughs> we've got to really sell that. <laughs> and we've also got England able to select twenty six players for the Euros now. So um, mm. Phil Foden gets in there, and maybe even some extra options as was being discussed on yesterday's podcast I think in terms of the away best Champions League performances ever probably not but from a Manchester City perspective in terms of away European performances I think you can definitely put that in that bracket PSG 1 Manchester City 2 first leg of the semi-final of the competition is done we now look forward to the second leg the return leg at the Etihad Stadium Manchester City do hold the advantage though with those two away goals more European semi-final action to talk about next here on Football Social Daily but it's the Europa League at the forefront Manchester United and Arsenal in action we'll talk about those two teams next Football Social Daily subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode Find more great shows or join the team at sport-social.co.uk. Welcome back to Football Social Daily from Sport Social, your daily Premier League offering. Don't forget to hit subscribe, that way you won't ever miss an episode again. Brand new podcast focusing on Premier League action and of course Premier League sides 
every single day of the football season. So it'd be good to have you with us. If you hit that subscribe button or follow whatever it may be, and that way you won't ever miss an episode. Manchester United, now they take on Roma. The Serie A side travel to Old Trafford. Eight o'clock kickoff this evening in their first leg of the Europa League semi-final. First of all, before we talk about this game in the nuts and bolts of it, Eric Bailly has signed a new deal with Manchester United. Callum, it's a player. He's a player you've spoken about before on the podcast. Um, as someone who, if he can stay fit, he's actually probably one of United's better defenders. Yeah, I know the the sort of the chat around this is, and I think I saw an article this morning um, about how Bailly is somehow destined to become another Marcus Rojo or Phil Jones or another member of the really expensive Deadwood that just seems to be sitting around Old Trafford for years and years and years. And he's not played that many games since he signed, I think there's there's a few defenders around him that, that were signed two or three years later that have twice the number of games that he does. But he he also he costs thirty million pounds. He's actually he's pretty quick. I've I've always I've never seen anything, you know, not to be impressed by when I've seen him play. I have friends who support United and, and they're big fans of him. And I think, you know, if you look at the four central defenders that United have, you want to have four good players in that position. I think I think he's an excellent option um to have in there. So I think I also think it's probably a, a no-win situation. Like if they if they if they let him go now towards the end of his contract, they're getting nowhere near the thirty million quid that they paid for him um, all the way all the way back when he signed. Um, and then if they let him go, he, he probably goes to a rival or he goes and performs really well in, in Spain or Italy. And it's like, well, look at the player that he just got rid of. So yeah, it's it's a strange one. I don't think they can win, but I think he's a good player. And I think I think I would hope for him, for his point of view, that he's got a role to play in that United team. People are hinting, JP, that this kind of underlines Manchester United's summer transfer strategy. This is almost an indicator of that, some are suggesting. They're basically saying, those people, that by putting pen to paper on a new contract, Eric Bailly effectively uh, is a new centre-back signing and it rules out any possible dip into the market for a new defender. Would you go along with that notion? Yeah, I, I would, actually. I think he has, as Callum says, a lot to prove. They obviously have a lot of faith in him. Well, that wouldn't be happening because it would probably have a few interested parties and they could probably move them on quite easily if they chose to do so and they had someone else lined up. So I think it shows that their priorities ahead of the transfer market reopening don't lie there. And if I was a United supporter, I would be hoping that what it indicates is that the club funds and the kitty and the piggy bank are being put aside and saved up for a big centre-forward signing. Um, I, I I think they need a, they need a Hollywood signing Manchester United. I think they need a inverted commas Manchester United type signing, um, someone who can come in and take those headlines and and and, and carry the, the the team forward. And for me, <laughs> um, Harry Kane fits the bill perfectly as a Manchester United centre forward. I think he has that whole talismanic thing about him. But he's probably just going to leave, uh, leave one club there who's not winning trophies for another. So I don't really see that happening from Harry Kane's point of view. But if I was a United fan, that's the story I'd like to be telling myself. Yeah, certainly it feels that there needs to be investment in the summer in the playing staff at Manchester United. Obviously, talks about Harry Kane doing the rounds on social media. The Sancho thing doesn't seem to be going away. Really interesting to see who is lining up at Old Trafford for the first game of next season in the Premier League. Will we see Edinson Cavani in the red of Manchester United next season? Talks uh, ongoing as well regarding a possible new contract for him, according to reports. Also links back to South America and a move um, to Argentina at the end of this season after just one year in the Premier League. But against Roma tonight, which of course is the focus for Manchester United, 
in Edinson Cavani, they have a player who scored more against Roma than any other Italian club that he's played against. Of course, before he joined PSG, Cavani was a player for Napoli in a, in a successful Napoli side. How important do you think he'll be tonight, presuming he plays? Because he was a substitute against Leeds at the weekend. With the experience that he brings, Callum, he's one of those players where, you know, if it drops to him in the box, you'd fancy him being in there. I said this um, earlier in the season when there was sort of question marks about Cavani's future and how he was a bit homesick and he hadn't really settled in England and going back to Argentina and, and all of that, by the way, is perfectly understandable during a pandemic where you've, where you've moved countries and you don't speak the language. But I did say at the time, I think he's an asset. I think he's an asset in these big European ties against opposition that he knows really well. He gives them something else, even if it's just off the bench. Um, and you've got you've to gotta say that, that in this game, um, he will be a, he'll be a real asset to United. He knows Roma. As you say, he scored more against them than any other club. Um, and you can just... I've always thought he was a big he was a big game player and I know that's a, such a cliche to say but it, it does feel like if anyone's even if they just win 1-0 it, it's probably just going to be him that gets on the end of it in the six yard box so yeah this is this is the game that you would keep Cavani around for even if he even if he does go in the summer Do you think I, I think sorry just to jump in there as well had Cavani I know it's a stupid thing to say had Cavani been they might not have got the ball into that position playing for Man City last night they would have probably scored three in the first half with those balls, the the, the the situations that were that were carved out and the ball that whipped across and a bit was made of it, the normal. That's had 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 Cavani been in that city team last night, they'd have probably scored three goals in the first half. Eight Premier League goals this season for Cavani. Five of them have been headers, and that's purely from a Premier League perspective. So I think that tells you a lot about what he offers you inside the penalty area. What's it like, JP, when you have players in your side that are able to come off the bench and make an impact? What's it like, maybe being an opposition player? And I say that because. Paul Pogba came off the bench late against Leeds on Sunday in that nil-nil draw. So did Cavani, of course. What's it like there was a player when you see players of that quality warming up, stripped down on the touchline, the board goes up, they're ready to come on and you're stood there on the field. You're a bit knackered, your legs are going a little bit and you've got someone like Pogba and Cavani, players like that coming onto the bench, uh, coming off the bench onto the pitch to try and make an impact. What's the kind of mentality of a player from an opposition point of view, first of all, and then maybe from a teammate's point of view? I think the, the, the mentality of the player is different from the supporter. Um, as, as an opposing supporter, you see them coming and you're going, oh no, you're putting your head in your hands, here they come, they're bringing on the big guns now, that's us in trouble, they're going to start to move the ball around and they'll move it to different and they'll do that. As a player, I think it's slightly different. I, I certainly, most footballers are incredibly <laughs> confident um, and arrogant individuals. You have to be, as a sports professional sports person, you need to believe in yourself to a level other people don't. And I always felt that when you saw someone with a big reputation come on the pitch, bring them on, get them on here, man. I'm already got this guy in my pocket, you want to bring him on now, have a go at me. So I used to always try and turn that round, that it was almost a compliment to you that's so good is the job that you're doing, they're having to, you know, bring in people they didn't want to use to try and get past you. So it can be, it, it, it can ha- it can go both ways. Sometimes that's how you go. But then, as you say, if you know in particular that uh, maybe the guy you're playing against is, is, is having a very, very bad game and they're going to bring on uh, the big hitter now to get him out of the way because somebody's been trying to get on and you're a bit tired and you're a bit run down, it can, uh, it, it can certainly put some fear into you and quite often what you tend to see then as teams will start to go into a slightly more defensive mode than uh, they, they were beforehand. So it's it, it's about that mentality. But for me, any, any any professional footballer who doesn't see that as a compliment to them that they're having to make that change, and then, yep, send them on. The bigger they come, the harder they fall. Send them my way and I'll take care of him as well. That would certainly be the way I would approach it. Yeah, that's interesting that because you think though, 
you know, maybe in that environment when you're seeing those sorts of players coming off the bench, maybe it does say a lot about the mental strength of these players that you'd be thinking, oh, no, like you say, very similar to supporters. But I guess it's because I've spent my whole life watching football from the stands and not playing it that maybe it is a totally different perspective. Um, Interesting. I'm really interested to see what Solskjaer's lineup is tonight at Old Trafford, whether Pogba and Cavani do get the start because it does feel like they slightly took their eye off the ball in the Premier League at the weekend, maybe with one eye fixed on this semi-final first leg. From a Roma perspective, Callum, they've got Chris Smalling and Henrik Mkhitaryan, two former Manchester United players. But they've also got a former City man in Edin Dzeko and the ex-Chelsea midfielder Pedro too. So even though Roma is seventh in Serie A, do these sorts of games epitomise why league form goes out of the window? Because they're not going to qualify for the top four Roma. So their best chance of getting Champions League football next season is winning the Europa League. But I suppose their season now hinges on trying to win silverware in this competition. Yeah, and the the names that you just mentioned there, they've all got experience at this level and they, and they are big game players. There's, there's, there's a lot to like about Roma. I mean, they're kind of, um, they're, they're a club that, they're quite trendy, um, but they're also a club that's kind of permanently in transition. Um, and you see a lot of lot of kind of former Premier League stars go there and and do quite well. And, and I'm I'm excited for this game. I mean, I won't be watching it because I'll be watching Partick Thistle win the Scottish League one against Falkirk tonight. Um, <laughs> but I am interested in it. It's got it's got the air of like a bit of a throwback, uh, big European night. And you know, you look at some of the players in the Roma team. They could they could they could actually they could beat United. And I think you know, mm. form does go out the window. It's a it's a semi final. It's a European semi final. Absolutely, it does. Edin Hazard was talking yesterday, JP, after the Chelsea versus Real Madrid game, that it's nice to play against old friends, but he doesn't really care about Chelsea because he's playing for Real Madrid and he wants to win for his side. Will we see a similar approach, I imagine, from Chris Smalling and Henrik Mkhitaryan? Or does it come down to a point of they have a point to prove because it never really worked out for... I mean, Chris Smalling was there for 10 years, so I don't want to say it it didn't work out for him. But, you know, there's always that little bit inside you that you want to do well against the against the the people that used to pay you. Oh, you want to murder them, man. You want to, you want to absolutely rub their nose in the dirt. You want to make their life a, a, a living hell for every moment that you're in it. There's no two ways about it. Or maybe, maybe just, that's just my psychopathic tendencies about everybody that I ever used to play <laughs> against or play for. But th- th- those guys will be out to, to prove a point. They know that there's people going to be watching them who haven't seen them play in a long time. And your personal, as I talked about, you know, ego and pride come into it massively for all sports people. And... There's no question that these guys' ego and pride took took a bit of a bruising. Um, some of the things that were said about and some of the times that they had. Um, they will feel that they've got a point to prove to some people uh, watching in the United Kingdom who who doubted their abilities and, and their success at that club. And they're at Roma, who, as, as Callum said, you know, I've, I've got a, a really good friend in Italy who's a big Roma fan. And they are a, a club I find hard to... to, to to pin down what they're all about and, and, and where they're going and what that plan is. And they're certainly in some pretty horrendous uh, domestic form at the moment. I think they're sitting about seventh in the league, but they've had a terrible time of it. Aidan Dzeko, I, I, I read, has gone for the first time in his career, he's gone 12 games without a goal or something like that. 12, yeah, they lost, they lost 3-2 to Cagliari at the weekend, who yeah. were like fighting relegation. So that was, I think there's, I've read a few sort of tweets from, from Roma supporters and the general feeling from the Italians is that with the form that they're in, they need to basically pull out all the stops. They don't fancy themselves at all against Manchester United tonight. But that that will be a different mentality from the players because we kind of used this example with Liverpool earlier this season where in the Premier League they were wretched, but yet in the Champions League they seem to have a, a new lease of life. Mm-hmm. 
I think you might see that from Roma tonight. I think it's. I think I, I do think this is good. I actually think both semis and we'll come out the other one minute are, are set up for for really good ties. Jekyll absolutely loves scoring against United as well. He's got seven goals in his career. Again. <laughs> <laughs> well, Cavani loves scoring against Roma, so we'll see what happens there. I think the last time United had such a big week um, in their season came at the end of February, start of March, where they had the game against Real Sociedad, then they had Chelsea, then Palace, then the Manchester derby, and then a couple of games against AC Milan, with also a game against West Ham wedged in between there, which of course is a top four clash the Chelsea game ended goalless the Palace game ended goalless and with Leeds finishing nil-nil at the weekend against Manchester United I just wonder <laughs> whether we might see something similar this time around is that a good result for United do you think given their away record this season Callum nil-nil stop Roma from scoring away from home uh, at Old Trafford and then go to Rome in a couple of weeks time and try and pinch a couple of away goals and get the job done uh, no, I think uh, keeping Roma from scoring an away goal should be the aim. But I also think you have to you have to be leading the tie when you go to the Olympico. Um, I know there won't be fans in the stadium, but that's still a very very difficult place to go. Um, so yeah, it's quite run down as well, isn't it? The Stadio Olimpico is not. Oh, um, these, these these players will hate that. <laughs> that's always the narrative, isn't it? It's like it's like oh, the stadium's a bit of a shambles. They'll, they'll find it really tough. But no, I think like you know they'll. Uh, if you're Man United, you've got to fancy yourself against Roma. I didn't realize it had that many nil nils. It just. Um, it's Super League material, that, isn't it? Right. <laughs> well, they've had a few nil-nils this season, but they've also had some nine-nils. Um, they've also had a couple of six-goal games. You don't know what you're going to get with Manchester United sometimes. Anyway, they take on Roma tonight at Old Trafford, 8pm kickoff. Callum will be watching Partick, though, hoping that they do the job. Uh, let's talk about the other Premier League side in semi-final action tonight in the Europa League. Arsenal travel to the Spanish coast to take on Villarreal, um, where Unai Emery is the manager there, JP. So Arsenal coming up against their old boss. We talk about players wanting revenge. We just mentioned it there. Uh, not revenge so much with, with the sense of Smalling and Mkhitaryan, but I'm sure Emery will want to win this game against Arsenal that little bit more. But how do managers go about that? We know what players can do. They can try and put in a better performance on the pitch, but managers can't exactly lace up their boots and get out there, can they? So how do you think managers go about being extra determined to win games because at the end of the day they can put the plan into place but it's not up to them to execute it I think that's probably an issue for, for Emery his spell at Arsenal was as we know underwhelming however when you read into it a little bit and, and, and whether you watch interviews and, and, and you listen to people who are at the club they do talk about his fixation with detail and his tendency to over-prepare for games being something that actually started to restrict players to the point that they would go into matches feeling mentally and physically weary from a five-day build-up of tactical analysis, of individual instruction, of almost being weighed down with so many... I, I mean, you, you, people forget that Emery came into, came into Arsenal after uh, almost two decades or whatever it was of, of Arsene Wenger. And I think that he... Um, by the way, I, I don't know if he actually has a better uh, win record and and uh, points tally than uh, Arteta after the same amount of games. Um, so it was, it's not but that trust bad. Trust the process, he, JP. <laughs> trust the process, mate. Trust it. Um, how long do you trust it for? So I think that Emery was was unfortunate because you know for, you can come in with all these football ideas and everything else, but you, what you don't truly understand at a club is what you're inheriting there, is the culture, the mentality, um, and all those are the politics of it that that have been embedded with this 
this figurehead and Wenger running the club and all areas of the club for so long, whereas we know that Emery famously was very much, I'm a head coach, that's my job, leave me to do that. So what I think is that his opportunity today or tonight to get one over on his old club um, and start to get that bit of revenge is maybe to take a little bit of focus off that and start to focus more on the mentality and the psychology of your players. Start to get into their heads about the one-to-one battles you're setting them up for so that they're going out onto that pitch. I, I used the boxing analogy earlier um, from from you know, from the, from when the bell rings, right out there, come out swinging and punching and, and, and get them ready to win their individual battles. I think that's how you... That's how you, you get one over in your old club, is winning that psychological battle um, because it, the, the psychology of it can weigh quite heavily on you and turn against you if you almost over-plan and over-prepare by going into too much detail too heavily and not allowing your players to to do what they need to and improvise in the given moments. But the psychology of going out there for war is how he gets it. I definitely agree with that because it's something that Jose Mourinho used to do really well when he would go back to a former club. And like the, like you say about the boxing, the game was almost won from a mental perspective, just from what the manager was saying before the game. And it was like, oh no, Jose's going to turn up and do us over. And you know, nine times out of 10, he would. Maybe not so much nowadays, but certainly back in the day, that appeared to be the case. And I think that's all managers can do because they can set up their plans tactically and they can analyse and, and be studious over the opposition. But at the end of the day, they're not the ones kicking the ball around on the pitch, are they? They're the ones on the touchline kind of orchestrating things. So I think if they can do their bit before the game, uh, that certainly plays a part. Whether Emery has taken that approach, I'm not so sure. But, you know, Villarreal as an opposition, they might not sound that tough a test for a club like Arsenal, Callum, but they have won 11 and drawn one of their last 12 games to get to the semi-final. It's a hell of a run that they've been on in the Europa League. Yeah, Villarreal are a good team. Um, they've got Gerard Moreno, who's who's doing bits in Spain at the moment um, up front, and, and Arsenal will want to be wary of him. Um, you say it doesn't sound like a kind of tough test for Arsenal. This sounds like exactly the kind of test that Arsenal would really struggle to come through. Um, I remember, I mean, you know, back when I started watching the Champions League when it was still on ITV and Villarreal were this kind of really dogged side that would go kind of quite far in, in that competition. And um, it's kind of good to see them back. I know they're they're a small club from a, from a smaller town in Spain, but they can, on their day, be very difficult to, to play against. And I, I think, um, yeah, they could cause Arsenal some real, real problems. In the background of all of this regarding Arsenal, JP, is a possible takeover, at least murmurs of that, from the owner and founder of Spotify, Daniel Ek, who of course is a billionaire because you've got to be to own a football club these days. The Cronkies, or KSE, the Cronkie Sports and Entertainment Group, currently own Arsenal Football Club. There's been a lot of um, unrest and support, a dissatisfaction around the involvement in the European Super League. We've seen protests outside the Emirates Stadium. However, there have been question marks over how public this guy, Daniel Ek, is uh, regarding his desire to take over Arsenal Football Club. He supports the club. And it's allegedly been backed by a couple of the Arsenal Invincibles, legends of the club like Patrick Vieira and Dennis Bergkamp. I think Thierry Henry is said to be on board with the proposals to take over the club as well. What are your thoughts on the whole thing? Because this is kind of rumbling away in the background. But even though we discussed it on yesterday's podcast, it, it feels like there's a long way to go for this to get anywhere close to being a successful takeover. As a musician, if you um, what if <laughs> scroll down my Twitter feed at any point, you will see my uh, thoughts on Daniel Ek <laughs> and Spotify. Um, I think that <laughs> had I, had the European Super League happened 
and Daniel Ek got involved, there would be no more fitting person for that show than him. So I hope he takes over Arsenal or any other football club and decides to treat football the same way he does music, where everyone gets in for free, everyone gets to watch it for free, and you pay the players if you kind of fancy it. So I'm looking forward to see what players Arsenal will sign <laughs> under Daniel Ek if that was to happen, and uh, the rest of uh, world football following suit as he completely... They'll sign up- Joe Rogan for £100 million. <laughs> Stadium announcer. Um, <laughs> they're a half-time wrestler. Um, and <laughs> so um, Daniel Ek is very good at making himself rich and nobody else. So that will be something that I, I, I look forward to seeing. But uh, th- th- there's nobody more fitting for the modern game of football, in my opinion, than Daniel Ek um, and his self-serving interests and paying absolutely no attention to the people who actually create the true value of something so beloved. I think there's an idiom somewhere there about frying pan and fire, but we won't get into it. <laughs> Just on, on that point that, that JP said, that, that Daniel Ek is excellent at one thing, which is making himself rich. This is this is like the, the big catch trying to do with this, right? So football at the moment is trying to figure out who they want, what sort of people now after the Super League tobacco do we want owning our club? And the answer always seems to be, well, we want community ownership, but then we won't be able to compete. And we're not going to do community ownership and 50 plus one and fan, fans on the board and stuff until everyone does it. So we just need to find like a more palatable billionaire, right? So we still need to have a billionaire, yeah. but it's just got to be a billionaire that we like, right? And Daniel Ek fits can we, the can we find Can we find that, that perfect hybrid between Gandhi and Jeff Bezos? Exactly. He's the man we're after. And, and the, the, the unfortunate truth is that if you're if you're community-minded community and sort of, you know, a, a bit of a socialist at heart and, and you love things like, you know, history and heritage and community and, and protecting the sport, you're not a billionaire. You don't become a billionaire with those ideas. So, like, you're not going to find... So Daniel Ek, you know, yeah, he's the cool billionaire that everyone's heard of because he because he does the music subscription thing he's actually he's nowhere near as rich as the Cronkies um and is is he going to is is he going to deliver because he's a fan of Arsenal sometimes I think putting fans in charge of clubs is is even worse than having like a faceless billionaire but it it does just seem to be you know what you know what shade of of billionaire would you like what shade of of kind of capitalist vulture would you prefer sir (laughs) (laughs) also also we always hear complaints about the run the people running these football clubs or oh, they don't understand football you know the cronkies are oh, they're americans they're more interested in american sports they don't understand our game this is a man who runs a music streaming service mm. how is daniel Eck going to have a clue what to do if he goes into the arsenal boardroom and to try and start making decisions i mean we talk about wanting football people running our football clubs i mean what does that even mean because the mo- most rich people in the world aren't football people, fundamentally. Like you say, it comes yeah. down to the same debate as you just made. If, if you think about it a wee bit like politics as well, this is something that always makes me literally laugh out loud when I hear people say it, whether it's, you know, it was Trump in America or Nigel Farage in the United Kingdom, and you would hear people back them up by saying, yeah, well, you know, he's straight talking, I can understand what he says and what his policies are, so that's what I'm voting for. No, <laughs> just because um, someday people understand what you're talking about doesn't make you the most eminently qualified person to be doing that job. Yeah. I want and the people- also, 
also lying is a trait of human beings as well so you can say something that you don't truly mean which That's, we see a lot we see a lot <laughs> I'm sure, I'm probably, I see, lying I've done it does exist I've done it myself <laughs> often enough in this podcast just to try and get a reaction at times but, 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 but I want you know I, I, if it, whether it's people running the country or running my football club I want the smartest most capable people possible I want them to be able to talk about things I don't understand because they're so far above me intellectually and in terms of business and football that I go okay you are way out my league I'm going to leave you to this and mm. sit back and enjoy the results that come out in the football pitch and everywhere else so uh, I, 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 I am I'm a massive sceptic over this whole uh, fans running football clubs things I think there's a place for it I just don't think it's at the absolute upper echelons of the elite game yeah, I'm sure we'll be talking about this potential takeover of Arsenal by Daniel Ek, but are the Cronkies even willing to, to sell the club? And if so, how much for? And will Daniel Ek even be able to afford it? So many different points uh, to be put into play there regarding that. But of course, Europa League semi-final action is at the forefront of Arsenal thinking tonight as they travel to Spain to take on Villarreal in the first leg of the semi-final. They got to the final two years ago, did Arsenal, uh, in Baku, Azerbaijan, and then they ended up being embarrassed by Chelsea on the global stage. So perhaps a chance for redemption for them if they do get to the final. That game kicks off also at 8pm. Can I just jump in, Niall, just before we do that, mate, and you round it up? I want predictions. Let's hear it. Who, give me from both of you, Who's going to be in the Champions League final and who's going to be in the Europa League final? Chelsea and Manchester City. And in the Europa League final will be Manchester United and Villarreal. Uh, Roma and Arsenal in the Europa League. And I'd yeah, probably City, Chelsea. Chelsea. Oh, go on, say PSG. That would have been fun. <laughs> <laughs> no, to be fair, to be fair, I, yeah, I, I actually don't want to make a prediction on that because I can see us throwing that, throwing that away. Um, yeah, PSG, Chelsea. <laughs> Go on, JP. I can't believe I'm going to say this, man. It's breaking my heart to do it, but I, I've got a horrible feeling we're going to see four English clubs <laughs> in, the, yeah. in the in the finals. And I'm saying that as I know I'm on a Premier League podcast. I realise I'm biting the hand that feeds me here. Um, but as a Scotsman, uh, seeing those four English clubs in, in that final would, <laughs> would be quite something to to to, uh, to handle. <laughs> but I think I mean I don't know if there's ever been a, a, a better chance for all four finalists to have come mm. from uh, from the Premier League than there is this year. It's, it really is there for them all. Yeah, absolutely. And don't worry, before mm-hmm. too long, JP, you'll have a bit of Jose Mourinho up there in... Uh in Parkhead to, to keep everyone entertained <laughs> there was, uh, there was, there, there was uh, yeah. a, wee bit, a wee bit of cheek happening to other people when, when he, he, he posted that was it on Instagram sorry he posted the picture of him grabbing the ball off Stephen <laughs> yeah. Gerrard the people yeah. said that's a sign he's coming to Celtic <laughs> um, and, <laughs> uh, but I, I don't see that happening it looks I don't know if you see it down there but all the paper talk up here now is that the deal's agreed with Eddie Howe and he's put together his back team, yeah. his backroom staff alright um, oh, I, I was hoping it was Mourinho so we could get some bitter anti-Premier League narrative sour oh, grapes man. and would, the Premier would, League's a farmer's league and all the rest of it it would have been fun it would have been fun (laughs) absolutely Leipzig announced their new manager on a on like a whiteboard in the in the staff room and it was just a big JM and so everyone's like so it was a JN for Nagelsmann so he's gone now to Bayern and they just like put a put a line on the end to make it into an N (laughs) and everyone was like Mourinho and I was like no Jesse March (laughs) (laughs) 
And best of luck to the Jags tonight. I hope they do it. That's it for Football Social Daily for today. Thanks very much for listening in. Of course, we'll have full reaction to those Europa League semi-finals on tomorrow's podcast. So if you hit subscribe or follow or whatever it is on whichever platform you listen to this podcast on, you'll be notified as soon as that show is ready. We'll also have a full preview ahead of the weekend's Premier League fixtures on Saturday morning. And Fergal, Brennan and the gang will be back on Sunday to look back across all of those top flight games. But for today's episode, that's it. And we'll catch you again next time here on Football Social Daily. Football Social Daily from Sports Social. Find us on Twitter at the Sports Social. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.